He is risen. risen Amen. We come to a worship service of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, we have to frankly admit that this is not terribly unlike any other day. This is what we gather weekly to do. This is why we gather on Sundays. We gather on this day because this is the day that the Lord was risen on. And yet we know, as Pastor Richard has said, that this is a special day for us. It's a day that we have set aside to specifically remember the fact that that tomb was empty, that Christ has indeed risen. So we gather to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He was risen by the power of the Father, who, as we've read this morning, was pleased to strike us, was smitten for our sins and raised for our glory. It is right then for us to gather and worship this Lord to sing songs to him, to pray to him, to ask him to speak words to us of life that we might have hope in this resurrection. It is a good day to gather. Christmas is without a doubt a more important day in our culture. It is a bigger cultural day. It is a bigger economic day. It means more. And it means a lot to us as well. The fact that Christ became human is the beginning of the salvation of God. But just as eggs, flour, sugar, and butter are all good ingredients, but they are not made perfect until you bake them into a cake or better yet, cookies. When that happens, they are made perfect. That is why God has placed those things on the earth. Why he placed Christ on the earth was to raise him from the grave to strike him for our sins, and to give him resurrection. So as good as Christmas is, this is the finished product of that. So we come. We come here to the book of Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, as we've already read this morning, Paul is trying to explain how there are many things that are good. There are many things that are good to believe. And there are many things that are necessary to believe. There will be plenty of people in heaven who will have misguided notions of what the scriptures were, who will have misguided notions of what sin was. They will have misguided notions of of what eschatology or the end things will be like. They'll have misguided notions of what baptism is or even how the church should be ordered and arraigned. They will have misguided notions of many things. But there will not be anyone there who has misunderstood Jesus coming out of the grave because it is necessary. Paul is very, very clear. If you do not believe, and if the resurrection has not happened, you are in your sins, and your faith is futile. You are not simply people who need stories to help you. You are to be pitied above all men. Paul argues for this throughout 1 Corinthians 15. We know that the resurrection is good and important and necessary, but we are not going to take time today to discuss why it is that the resurrection is true or why it is that it's important. We are going to look at one verse, and we're going to look at one word in one verse to explain how Jesus Christ has been encapsulated in this word, firstfruits. What does it mean that Christ is the firstfruits? In verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul changes all of a sudden. He's talked about all of the negative things that come if the resurrection hasn't happened. If the resurrection hasn't happened, no one is going to be raised from the dead. If the resurrection hasn't happened, then this life is all you get. If the resurrection hasn't happened, then you are still in your sins. But, in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's good news. Paul explains that in a very odd way. 
It seems like that would be enough to explain what's happened here. Christ has been raised from the dead. But this little thing that he tacks on here at the end of verse 20, this little phrase is an explanation of what it means for Christ to have been raised from the dead. What does it mean for Christ to have been raised from the dead? Paul says he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We oftentimes use words without any special connotation. We'll use things like terrific, awesome, wonderful to mean exactly the same thing. And picking one word versus another doesn't actually imply anything about our choices of words. And we can think the same thing when we come to Scripture. First fruits might just be a nice way of Paul saying, well, he was the first, and it seems like we use fruit language all the time in Scripture, so we'll just kind of jam those things together and, and call him first fruits, saying that there will be many who come after him. But it is an Old Testament word. It is really heavily grounded in the Old Testament. And Paul was, if nothing else, a scholar of the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament while he bathed in the Old Testament. It was his life and breath. And so when he uses this word, it ought to carry a great deal of importance. And likewise, the Holy Spirit working through Paul has placed this word here for us. So let us go then and think through what it means for Christ to be the first fruits of it. To do this, we need to kind of ground ourselves in the Old Testament first. First fruits were the produce of the land, and they weren't just fruits. The original languages don't use the word fruits. It's very unfortunate that the English does, but it's not fruit. It's anything that comes up and grows up out of the land. Anything that the, the Hebrews would have used to maintain their own houses or their own selves, barley, wheat, any of these things would have been considered first fruits. They would have given of these first fruits as soon as they harvested them to God. It was a demonstration that God was the one who owned the land. They didn't t- kick the Canaanites out. They weren't the ones who did that. It was ultimately God who drove them out. It was his land, and he had rights to the first things from that land. And so they were to come, and they were to give to him of the first things of this land. It doesn't matter what it was. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, all of those were to be given. And not just those things, but even the things they made with them, olive oil, wine, flour, these were to be given to God first. Exodus twenty two twenty nine says this, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Even the firstborn is considered a first fruit because Exodus knows as well as anything that we are children of the dust. We were made from the dust. We are nothing but products of dirt. And so therefore, even our firstborns are to be given as a, as a first fruit to God. But first fruits weren't just harvesting whatever you got and giving it to the Lord. You don't just look at your grapes and say, well, this one doesn't look too good. That's a first fruit, and we'll throw that aside. It is the best of what you gather. Exodus 23, 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. In the book of Malachi, Malachi chastises the people of Judah because they have not done what they needed to do. They have not been bringing in the right things to God. They have been bringing in soiled and spoiled things with blemishes. They've been bringing in the worst of them, and God calls them robbers for doing it. They are robbing from him. They are taking what does not belong to them. The best things belong to God. And what is more, first fruits were not just part of the produce of the land. They were not just the best of that produce, but they were also done to secure the blessings on the rest of the harvest. God was not just the owner of the land. He was the one who gave that land growth. 
Harvesting was a long process in the first century. They didn't have GPS-guided combines, okay? They, they gathered these things by hand. And, and after a first day's worth of work, there was a lot more work to do. And in that lot more work to do, there's a number of things that could befall that land that would kill off the rest of the harvest. There could be blight. There could be hail. There could be locust. There could be fire. And so they brought this harvest, this beginning of the harvest, to God to secure the rest of the harvest and its goodness. After bringing in the first fruits, the people were to say to the Lord, as instructed in Deuteronomy 26, saying this, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven, and bless your people Israel, and the ground that you have given to us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey." as they realize that it is God who has given the growth, as they have faithfully followed him, they ask him, they pray that he will do what he has promised to them and give them a land that flows with milk and honey. It was to secure the rest of the harvest and the rest of the blessings from there on out. So if that is the background, a very brief background to what first fruits is, what does Paul mean when he says, Christ is risen from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First, it means that in his resurrection, Christ is preeminent. He is preeminent. He is greater than all things. Again, we are reminded that the first fruits were to be the best of what could be taken. It was the best of what could be plucked. It was the best things that came up out of the ground. You didn't take what was second best or third best, but you were to grab the best things and give them to God and to present them with God. And there is no difference here with the resurrection of the dead. And it's easy for us to think, well, it just means that Christ is exalted among men, that he is better than what the rest of mankind was. And so we who follow him in his resurrection are just a little bit less than him, and he is the best of them. But that is not what this means. It means that he is the best of a whole new creation. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he didn't just enter into a normal life, but he ushered in an entirely new creation. Paul talks like this in many, many places, in Galatians and in other places, but 2 Corinthians 5.17 is perhaps the best one. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. You are not who you were, but you are a brand new creation. When Paul talks like that, he knows that there has been a creation. He uses the language of creation all the time. When he says there is a new creation, he is saying, this is just like when God spoke the word into existence. When he spoke and the earth popped into existence. It is exactly like that. When you are saved, there is a new creation as you follow in line with Christ. When he spoke and Christ came up out of that grave, it was a new universe being created. Christ is not simply the greatest of men. He is the greatest of all things. He is preeminent above everything. In Romans 5, Paul continues to compare Christ with Adam, the very first man, and everyone who came after him to Christ, the very first of the new men and all who would come after him. Christ is simply better. God the Father loves Christ the Son more than you will ever love anything in your life. Repeatedly, we hear this in the Gospels. 
God will speak of his son. He looks down and he says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. The son stood before the father from all eternity. God didn't need to make anything else to make him happy, for he had his son, eternally happy in his son. Nothing that he has created has added to the pleasure of God in his son. His son is so wonderful and so magnificent that if all of you were to exist this second, it wouldn't blip on God's radar because he has his son. He needs none of us. He stood before him with all glory and honor and power. The Father loves Jesus more than you love anyone in your life. Your son, your daughter, your spouse, your dog. The food you eat, the air you breathe, your very life. You don't love yourself as much as God loves the Son. This is not just the Father's sort of subjective measure, though. Objectively, Christ is better than anything. He is better than anything you might love and put your hopes and your dreams in. He's better than anything that might ever give you joy. He's better than the smile of your children, the touch of a lover. He is better than anything that you could ever put a price on. Listen, Jesus is greater than everything. He is preeminent in majesty, for he is the king of kings. He is preeminent in power, for it is through Christ that everything was created. Anything that you consider powerful, he was the one who made it. He is preeminent in beauty, for he is without spot or blemish. He is preeminent in glory, for he is God on high. He is preeminent in holiness, for he was fully without sin. He is preeminent in compassion, for he gave himself for our sin. He is preeminent in zeal, because he loves God with every fiber of his being. He is preeminent in genius, because he is wisdom incarnate. He is preeminent in imagination, because he has made everything that art is a lame portrayal of. He is preeminent in justice because he is the righteous judge of all the earth. He is preeminent in grace because by his blood we are transformed. He is preeminent in goodness because he is the very standard of what good is. He is preeminent in devotion because nothing can take you out of his hand. He is preeminent in strength because he is able to save everyone to the fullest extent. He is preeminent in kindness because he forgives all of your sin. He is preeminent in joy because not even the cross could extinguish his desire for the joy that was set before him. Listen, you can take every atom of every molecule of everything in this room and every room in this world and every world in our solar system and every solar system and every galaxy and every galaxy and every universe that was created, could be created, has been created, or might be created in the future, that God even thought about creating. You could put them all in a neat little box with every moment that has ever happened to anyone ever in existence, and you could hand it to God as a gift, and God would say, I have my son. He is better than all of it. He is preeminent over all things, both created and uncreated. He is the first fruit of the new creation. In his resurrection, Jesus is preeminent. He is the best. In his resurrection, secondly, Jesus is different. Listen, resurrections aren't new. The Bible speaks of a lot of resurrections. It's not like this was a surprise what happens to Jesus here. Jesus not only foretold of it, but he did it before. He raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. But even before that, people raised the dead before Jesus ever came to this earth. 
Elijah in 1 Kings 17 raised the widow's son from death. He prayed to God and God gave life back to this little boy. But we are right to suspect that the word first fruit means something distinct here. It's not like the other resurrections. They would be first fruit of Jesus' resurrection, but that's not the case. Jesus is the first fruit because his resurrection is different than all of those who have come before him. The widow's son, Lazarus, anyone else who has been raised from the dead before Jesus suffered the same futile lives that they suffered before. They were still subject to death. They were still subject to sin. They were still subject to the pain and the groanings of this creation. They were not, outside of the entrapments that all of us feel in this life, pain and frustration and anger and powerlessness. They were both fragile and they were futile. But that is not what we have in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is different. While he came and took on human flesh, he was made weak by that flesh. And he was able to suffer and die in that flesh. But his resurrection is different, for he will never suffer again. And he will never die again. And he will never be subject to the futility or the fragility of this flesh and this life. Doug's sermon on Friday reminded us that if we are united with Christ in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this is our hope. Our hope is that we will be raised not to live lives like these. These lives are hard. It's understandable why people look at the idea of eternal life and they say, I I don't know that I want that. Life is hard. It's filled with frustrations and turns. Even if life was possibly going to get better, we all know that life can get much, much worse very, very quickly. It is so easy for us to become bored and tired, lonely and static in our lives. And even with all of the distractions that we have in this world, we realize that there's something about death that many people find, even though they don't long for it, welcoming. There is a rest that comes with it. They are tired of this life. And the thought of having an eternal life just wears them out. They're worried about becoming bored and and not having joy. It's understandable. But it's understandable because you know the effects of sin. I've quoted this before, but it's worth quoting again by G.K. Chesterton. He said, Because children have an abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. Anyone who has kids knows this, right? You, do, you make any joke one time. If it's good, you've got to repeat it 18,000 times. It's horrible for adults, but it's beautiful for kids. So he's picking up on that. He says, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's true. If you have kids, you know that. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has an eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old. Our Father is younger than we. That's our problem. 
when you are bored with life, it's because you have sinned. Life ends in death, but death will slowly, slowly take your life. When it says the wages of sin is death, it doesn't mean that you are going to die. It means that you have already died, and that work of death is working its way through you. You don't have the capacity for life. You don't have vitality. And as my children follow this pattern, they will grow up one day, and they will not exalt in monotony anymore. They will be weakened by death. They will be weakened by the frailty of their lives. They will be weakened in their flesh and want an end to it. But the resurrection of Jesus fixes that. Later on in this book, in just a couple of verses down in verse 35, Paul asks and answers this question. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So, listen, you plant an acorn, you don't get a bigger acorn growing up out of the ground, right? You plant an acorn and you get an oak. What is planted does not resemble what grows in any way, shape, or form. That's what he's saying. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glories. And part of this, we just want to throw up our hands and say, Paul, thanks. I hadn't noticed that I'm different from a fish, but I really appreciate the helpful heads up, right? We, we know this. Intrinsically, we understand that, that all of these things might be made of flesh. We might be made of the same carbon and oxygen and nitrogen. And we might be put together by the same sort of strands of DNA as monkeys, but we know that there's a fundamental difference from us and them. We get that. But Paul's point is this, that what you will be when you are raised from the dead is just as different as you are from a fish and a cow right now. He goes on to say this. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. He says, it is just like that acorn planted. When you die, that acorn's going to die and it rises up as a mighty oak. And he says, your body will be different. That which was perishable will now be imperishable. That was mortal will now be immortal. You will have the capacity for life that you never had before. The vitality that children have, you will have overflowing in you forever and ever. This is not something weird like those weird Greek creatures that have the head of a meerkat and the body of a bear and the tail of like a wiener dog, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you will be you, but you will be you to the extreme. You will have a capacity for life and for love and for happiness and for joy that you can't possibly imagine now. This is one of the reasons why you cannot stand in the presence of God as you are. For the joy and the love of the Lord would kill you, not because it is evil, but because it's so good. And you can't contain it. It's like overflowing a balloon. You would pop. But there will be a day when God will raise you 
and he will give you all the capacity you need to stand before him and soak in the joy and the love and the peace and the goodness that he offers to you. Just as Christ, when raised, was different, his body was not subject to the same things that it was subject to before. He will never die again. He even ascends to the right hand of God Almighty and stands in the very presence of God, and so will we. In his resurrection, Christ is the first fruit because he is different. He is the first fruit because he is preeminent. But in his resurrection, Christ is also our hope. He again is the first fruit. The name itself implies that there is more coming. When I say the first point is this, you ought to assume that there should be a second point coming. And the second point for us is us. We are following in the resurrection of Christ. The very practice of giving the first fruits was to be understood that there was more coming. It was to secure the rest of the harvest as well. So Christ is our guarantee that we too will be raised. His resurrection is our hope, for it seals for us all that we could ever want. It is our salvation. It guarantees our salvation because it guarantees our forgiveness, because it is God's sign and seal on Jesus Christ himself that the sacrifice that he gave for your sins to gain your forgiveness was accepted and good and true. It seals for us that Jesus' words are true. That every word that he spoke to us, every promise that he made to us is true in himself. It seals for us that God will bring an end to all pain and suffering and destruction and loneliness brought by sin. That death, as we have sung several times this morning, is destroyed. That Satan is crushed. That while he bit the heel of Jesus, his head was destroyed. It is a seal that sin is removed. With the resurrection of Christ, we have the birth of our true and abiding hope. Listen, there is nothing better than this for you. Paul talks like this in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. He says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul had indeed gained much. He had much going for him, and he says all of it was rubbish. I, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I, I would give away everything in this world, everything that I might know Christ and attain his resurrection. He is our hope. And just as he is preeminent and good above all things, he should be the desire of all of our hearts. Every bit of idolatry is loving something, even a fraction of what you love Christ. He is better, but he is not necessarily better in our hearts. The idea of faith, the idea of striving in faith is to make him just that. Killing idolatry is raising up Christ in your hearts as the very God, the very model, the very everything that you should attain to. Everybody wants the resurrection 
and everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Paul says, no, I will suffer. I would go through death if need be, that I might attain the resurrection of Christ. Make no doubt, he is your hope, but your hope might attain suffering. Your hope might take joyless nights, fretting over children or fretting over loved ones. Your hope might take you in places that are dark and dim, but there is always the hope that all of that is worth it because Christ will make everything right in his resurrection. That is the only hope we have. Friend, if you want to hope in something else, you may do so. Your hopes are futile and they will be dashed. There is one thing to place your hope in. There is one place to put your trust in, and that is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. There is absolutely nothing that will ever make you right before God, nothing that will make this world right, nothing that will set you on a good course in life, nothing that gives you wisdom for how to live lives, nothing that will teach you how to make your way through life or make your way with people through life. There is nothing in this world that will ever help you the way Jesus Christ can help you. And you attain that help only through belief and trust in him, that he died for your sins and that he was raised for your justification. Put your hope and your trust in him. Do not trust in chariots and horses. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some do trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Oh, Lord, save the king. Isn't that beautiful? How did God save the king? He raised him from the dead. Do not trust in chariots and horses. Don't trust those things that are made. Don't trust those things that are created. Don't trust the things that man has done or that man can do. But you are to trust in the name of the Lord. You are to trust in the glorious trinity, the Father who sent the Son, the Son who achieved your salvation, and the Spirit who then applies it to you. You are nothing but a child of the dust. And it is to dust you will return. Christ is the first fruits of that dust. And he, therefore, is the first fruits of all of us who will come after him. And because of Christ, when we are raised from the dust again, we will be different. We will be full of life, vitality, joy, and all things will be good. God is our hope. He is our secure refuge. He is our tower. And he is the rock upon which we can build our lives. And we can do that and only do that because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Holy God, you are good and kind to us. At times that word seems very weak when talking about what you have done for us. We are reminded, Father, of our sin before you, of how these things are so great that we cannot manage to understand them nor to achieve them on our own. It is that which you give us by your grace that is ours. Nothing that we have achieved, nothing that we can gain. These things are feeble and worthless. But you have given us so much, not only in providing your spirit for us, but in giving us our Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sins and being risen for our justification, that we might rise with him to live a life like he lives, to be freed from sin and the power of sin, to be freed from the the death that ensnares us and entraps us even while we live. We pray, God, that you will give us eyes to see and faith to believe what you have proclaimed to us this day.
We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.